Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let's open our Bibles to uh, the book of Famous Amos. Amos in the Minor Prophets, and tonight, chapter 3. Let's pray together. How privileged we are, Father, to have a freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, to be able to gather unhindered, unafraid, unashamed, to be able to own and carry and read and study a Bible. For we know that so many around this world, our brothers, our sisters, do not enjoy these freedoms. Lord, strengthen us as your Spirit would seek to feed us through your Word. Strengthen us for the task that you've laid before us, the opportunities that will come our way. We want to offer ourselves before you as living sacrifices. And so, Lord, we sacrifice this next hour. You have our attention. Our ears are open. As we devote ourselves to what you would tell us, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was A.W. Tozer who once said that a scholar can interpret the past, but it takes a prophet to interpret the present. Amos was such a man at a very crucial time in Israel's history. A prophet. At least he became a prophet. He did not come from prophetic stock. And he says so. In chapter 7, he will tell us, For I was neither a prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder from Tekoa, and I was a tender of sycamore fruit. In other words, listen, I didn't get trained for this job professionally. I never went to prophet school. I'm a non-profit organization. I'm a farm boy. I'm a country boy. So God called him uniquely, somebody who wasn't crafted for the job, to take the job. Which is part, it's one of the ways God works. In 1 Corinthians, the Lord will say, For you see your calling, brethren, not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Out of obscurity comes this prophet. A place called Tekoa. Just a a wide spot in the road. Not much of a village. About 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem. A few miles from Bethlehem. And he was sent from this country rural setting to the big city. But it wasn't the big city where he lived, which would have been Jerusalem. It was the big city up north. He was a sheep breeder from the south. God called him to go up north. Remember, the kingdom is divided at this 
point in history. The ten northern tribes called Israel, the two southern tribes called Judah. And he goes to the city of Bethel. And there at Bethel he brings this prophetic utterance. So he's a country boy that goes to the big city. Now he's got some help. The prophet Amos was a contemporary with another prophet by the name of Hosea. We've already covered his writings. Same time, same place, very different style. If you read Hosea and then you read Amos, you can see that they ministered to the same group of people in the same city, but they were very different in their approach. You might say that uh, Hosea was a prophet from the heart to the heart. Amos was in your face. And so tonight's message I've called Sermons from the In-Your-Face Prophet. Hosea will emphasize and did emphasize the mercy of God in the midst of judgment. Amos has a different take. His emphasis is on the majesty of God that mandates judgment. Same group, same time, same place, different approaches. Mercy, majesty. Well, we've already covered chapters 1 and chapter 2. Now we cover tonight, by God's grace, at least chapter 3, if not chapters 3 and 4. Let me just refresh your memory on the setting. It helps to understand what was going on at the time that the guy gave his message. It was a very prosperous time in Israel's history. Perhaps the most prosperous to date in ancient Israel. Down south, the king of Judah was a famous king by the name of Uzziah. Up north was King Jeroboam II. It was a time of great luxury for Israel. And here's why. The Assyrian Empire had just defeated the Syrian Empire. So since the Syrians were no longer a threat to Israel, Israel was able to take more land and enjoy the spoils that came from Syria. So the borders expanded. They had more revenues. They enjoyed more blessings. But... With luxury came laxity. And with more luxury came moral laxity. They became so prosperous, eventually they began to forget God. It is interesting, and it is true. When we're down and out, our prayer life becomes red hot. God hears from us quite a bit. We depend on Him. We let Him know our need. But then things get good, and we don't feel the need to depend as much. No wonder, then, the Lord would allow or even prescribe suffering. So that we might remember, hey, I'm dependent upon God here. And maybe it's been a period of time where in luxury you haven't called upon God, but then something occurs, and it's desperate. 
And you cry out to God, and it's as if God goes, Hey, long time no see. Great to hear from you. Glad you checked in. Israel hadn't been checking in, even though God had repeatedly tried to get their attention. The prophet Amos's approach is very clever. Of course, it's anointed and ordained by God, so we would expect nothing less. But what he does is, before he pronounces judgment in your face on the nation of Israel, it's as if he draws a bullseye. It's as if he goes around and proclaims judgment, denunciatory proclamations on seven of Israel's neighbors first. He begins with Damascus in Syria. He moves down to Gaza, which was a Philistine stronghold. He moves up to Tyre, a Phoenician city. He goes east to Ammon, Edom, Moab. And with each pronouncement of judgment on other nations around Israel, you can hear the crowd in Israel going, Amen! Preach at Amos. I like this guy. I love his message. He's denouncing all my enemies. Amen! But then he starts moving in closer and making them feel uncomfortable. He pronounces judgment upon Judah, where Jerusalem is, which would make those in Israel feel really nervous. Because if they could just connect the dots, they'd say, hey, now, wait a minute. If Judah, our spiritual sister in the Lord, can't escape judgment, where does that leave us? It's exactly what Amos wanted them to figure out. So, as he's making these denunciatory proclamations circling the nation of Israel, he's really drawing a bullseye. He moves in closer, deals with Judah, and then finally, bang, right in the middle. And the bulk of it is judgment upon Israel, those ten northern tribes. So it says in chapter 3, verse 1, Hear this word. I stop there because there are going to be several messages he gives now to Israel, the ten northern tribes. And they begin, at least three of them, begin with the same phraseology, which gives it away that this is the beginning of a new message. Hear this word. Hear this word. Hear this word. So chapters 3, 4, and 5, you find that repeated. Toward the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, He gives two more messages, but he begins differently. Instead of hear this word, he'll say, whoa, which is one of the favorite words that prophets like to use. So we're going to look at five judgments. Now, chapters 1 and 2, you could call the roaring of judgment. The terminology is used, God roars from Zion. Chapters 3 and 4 are the reasons for judgment. And there are three that we'll look at. Number one, because of Israel's privileged position. Now think about this. Israel was God's chosen nation. Of all the people in the world, God chose them. Which could make them think, well, we're not going to get judged. We're God's favored bunch. We're His chosen nation. God has something to say about that. 
It's one of the reasons for judgment. Hear this word, verse 1, that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. They would naturally think, how could God ever judge us? We're his pet. We're his children. We're the chosen few. And God would say, that's exactly why I will judge you. To whom much has been given, much shall be required. You've been blessed. You've been chosen. Out of all the families of the earth, you're the only ones I picked. And because I picked you, I called you to live at a different standard. Because you didn't live at the different standard, that's why I want you to hear this, God would say. So that the punishment would be commensurate with the privilege. High privilege, greater punishment. There is a principle that continues even in the New Testament. Those who are in church leadership, especially those who proclaim the truth. uh, James will say, be not many teachers or many masters, for you will receive the stricter judgment. Israel, chosen by God as a light, will receive the greater judgment. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter will say, For the time has begun for judgment to begin at the house of God. Why? Because the house of God, the people of God, the chosen of God, are called to a different and higher standard. A good illustration of this is in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts where you have a husband and wife in the church named Ananias and Sapphira who conspired together to pull a fast one on the elders in Jerusalem. They said, hey, we have extra land. Let's sell it and we'll give the money to the work of the church. But they did it in such a way so that the leadership thought we're giving every penny of it. We're giving it all to the Lord. But they gave a good chunk of it. I mean, it was a generous donation. But it was in pretense because they actually kept some of it back but made everybody think we're giving all. God responded to that chicanery by killing them dead. Now don't mistakenly think that God sent them both to hell. I expect to see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven. But it was God's initial reaction to the first sign of impurity in his church. And we can thank God that he doesn't deal with people the same way today. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine if we were to say something or give something to the Lord, but it wasn't truly from the heart? If we were to lift our hands and sing, I surrender all, but we really hadn't surrendered all? You couldn't even finish the song and you'd keel over dead. Every church would have to have a morgue in the basement. But that was God's initial reaction to impurity. So, I've chosen you out of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Now, beginning in verse 3 down to verse 6, there's a list of seven questions that God asks. Seven questions. 
They're cause and effect questions that God asks. First one, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Answer, no, they can't. I love to take walks. I've done that for a long time. Love to take walks and pray. But I really love to take a walk with my wife. But if you have a fight with your husband or your wife, it's very difficult to say, let's just go take a walk. There has to be an agreement. When you walk with somebody, you agree on a time, you agree on a place, you agree on a destination. And what a privilege it is to walk with God. I've always loved the idea in the Garden of Eden where it says, And God came in the cool of the day, and He was walking amongst the trees of the garden. And one day, as He went, was coming for His, let's say, afternoon walk with Adam, He had to cry out, Adam, where are you? For Adam had sinned and he was hiding from God. What a privilege to walk with God. But God is saying, how can I walk with you when you are continually walking in sin? So how can two walk together unless they are agreed? That's the first question. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? And a follow-up question, will a young lion cry out, of his den if he has caught nothing. Now Amos was a shepherd. He knew what life outside was like. He knew that if he ever heard the roar of a lion, it was typically because A, he was about to pounce on prey, or B, because he had caught some animal and was going to drag it home. And once a lion, an adult lion, drags its prey toward its den, the little lions will become aroused. And when they see mama bringing home the food, they get up and they roar as well. So God is saying, in effect, I am roaring out of Zion. I am roaring through my prophet Amos, and I don't make any idle threats. If I am roaring, it's because I'm about to pounce. The prey is about to feel the teeth of the lion. In this case, God using the Assyrians to do that. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? And another follow-up question, will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing? The trap would, of course, be the Assyrian army. They would entrap the northern kingdom. In 722 B.C., it happened. It was a trap. Verse 6, if a trumpet is blown in a city... Will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Whenever a public announcement had to be made thousands of years ago in Israel, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have loudspeakers, they didn't have radio stations, PA systems, foghorns. And so they had to use trumpets, little horns from a ram, the shofar. And if it was a peaceful time, they would have a certain blow to the trumpet. If everything was calm and good, the shofar would blow. And they would know, shofar, show good. There there wasn't going to be a problem. (laughs) But if the people were to gather and convene in a certain place, 
for an announcement. A different blow of the shofar would be uttered. If the people were to march for war, yet a different sound. And if there was an alarm, it was an unmistakable blow of the trumpet that signaled the alarm. God is signaling the alarm, he is saying, blowing the trumpet, so to speak, by using his prophet Amos, as well as Hosea, to preach to the northern kingdom. And it's interesting in verse 6, if there is calamity in a a city, will not the Lord have done it? Isn't it interesting that the Lord is unashamed to bear the responsibility for the calamity that is going to come upon his people? You know, sometimes we feel like we need to defend God apologetically. Well, you know, the reason God lets these things happen is because, and we feel like we're almost apologizing. God steps up and goes, hey, well, let me tell you something. I take responsibility. I am sending this calamity on them. I make no bones about it. I'm God. I don't have to apologize for anything. I'm sending calamity on the city of Bethel, and I'll use a worse enemy and a worse people than they, the Assyrians, to do it. Because I want to get my people's attention. I want to bring them back. I want them to move forward in repentance and then eventually in restoration. So, reason number one that God will judge them is because they've been called to the high privileged position of walking with God. They've said no to walking with God. They persisted in walking in sin. So God is roaring, blowing the trumpet, and saying the trap is going to fall. Judgment is coming. Reason number two God is sending judgment, prophetic revelation. Prophetic revelation. God has promised that he would send judgment. And because God made a promise, God must keep his promise. May I make a suggestion to parents for just a moment to follow the approach of God to his children. When God deals in the Old Testament with his errant, unrepentant children, God never threatens But he always promises. Now sometimes parents threaten, but they don't promise. And kids figure that out really quickly. If you do that again, I'll do such and such. But the kid keeps doing it. Why? Because you never did such and such after the first time. I'm warning you again. And then they escalate the whole situation. And the voice gets loud and it gets to a fever pitch. And so the child knows there's a certain decibel range that I have to watch out for. (laughs) When there starts to become a shrill or a nervous twitch, then I know time's up. But until then, I, I have a lot of latitude. And it's because the parent has threatened but not promised. If you say, if you do it again, I'm going to spank you, spank him. So they know... My parents don't threaten me, they promise me. Now that's what God did. He was very merciful, but he made a promise. And he's saying, because I've made a promise, I'm a God of my word. I'm going to keep my promise. I sent prophets to say, if you cross this line, then I will act. I'm about to act. Look at what it says in verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing 
unless he reveals his secret to his servant, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? It's always been an interesting scripture to me that God does nothing unless he reveals it to his prophets. God is a God of signs. He gives indicators. He reveals to his prophets what he's going to do so that his prophets can warn, be warned themselves and warn the people. Before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, God warned Abraham. And he was even kvetching saying, shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I am about to do? He knew that it was part of his own character to reveal. To Joseph, God gave a warning that there would be seven plentiful years followed by seven years of famine. Jesus gave a warning to his disciples about the things that would fall upon Jerusalem. So God speaks in advance. He's revealed it by the prophets. And he's going to keep his word. Beginning in verse 9 is the third reason that God judges. And that is because of Israel's persistent oppression. Their persistent oppression. They just kept at it. They wouldn't let go. They kept pushing forward in their rebellion, in the oppression of one another, in their moral laxity, in their... Um, disgracing the Sabbath, etc., etc. And so that's the third reason. Proclaim, verse 9, in the palaces at Ashdod. That's down in Philistine country, enemy territory. And in the palaces in the land of Egypt, again, far south in enemy territory, and say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria. The mountains of Samaria is right in the middle of the nation of Israel in the north, And Bethel's right in the middle of the mountains of Samaria. So, assemble on the mountains of Samaria, see great tumults in her midst, and the oppressed within her. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. It's as if God is summoning all of Israel's neighbors to say, Hey, come on up and watch the show. I'm going to judge my people. I want you to come and see what I'm going to do. Assemble. Check it out on the mountains of Samaria. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord. As a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear... So shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts. Now what does that mean? As the shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear. Well, you know, a shepherd had a job. His job was to protect the sheep. The flock. And he did it with two implements, a rod and a staff. A staff was to guide the sheep. A rod was to beat off wolves. So if a predator would come, that shepherd would take out the club and just go to town on the mug of that lion or wolf or whatever. 
No wonder David said to God, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm comforted that you guide me and I'm comforted that you protect me. It's part of the shepherd's role. Amos was a sheep breeder from Tekoa. He knew all about protecting sheep. However, sometimes the flock would be big and one part of the flock would be vulnerable because unattended. Maybe on the outskirts or over a hill where the shepherd was unavailable at the time. And a mountain lion could come out and tear or attack one of the sheep. Now, if the shepherd didn't own the flock, but was hired by the owner of the flock to protect the sheep, if one of the sheep was caught, say, by a lion, since the shepherd had to account for every sheep in the flock, if a sheep was attacked, he had to bring evidence back to the owner that the sheep was attacked because maybe he was stealing the sheep himself. He had to prove that it was attacked by a predator. So he had to bring back whatever piece was left, a leg, an eye, an ear, to demonstrate, look, your flock has been attacked. God is using that terminology, that setting, that metaphor, that colorful, picturesque, rural language to depict that Assyria will come in and destroy the flock And only a little bit will be left, a remnant, a few people will last and live in Samaria after Assyria is done. And true enough, 722 B.C. came, the Assyrians wiped out Bethel, wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, and only a few of the poorest of the poor were left in the city of Bethel and in the towns of Samaria. Verse 14, In that day I will punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish. and The great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Now you know about Bethel. You remember that way before this, right when the kingdom was teetering, and about to split. One of the reasons that it did split is a guy by the name of Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam I, rebelled against Rehoboam, Solomon's son in the south, and he placed two calves, idol worship, and he placed them, one at Bethel, right in the middle of Samaria, and one at Dan, way in the north. So these calves were idolatrous places of idol worship. These temples and most temples had altars. And the altars had horns. Now when you think of the horn of an altar, don't think of a horn of an animal. Think of the corners of the altar and there's protrusions. They, they protrude upwardly and outwardly. And they come to a corner. These horns, if a fugitive wanted asylum, could go into that sanctuary and grab a hold of the horn of the altar and be guaranteed asylum. They would have uh, judgment passed over them until they got a fair trial. But God is saying, there's no escape. I know everything. I see everything. No matter where you flee, no matter where you go, you won't be safe. They're coming, and they're going to destroy the whole northern kingdom. You see, they thought they could pull a fast one on God. They thought 
judgment would escape them. They thought, we're the chosen people. We're going to escape all this horrible stuff. The book of Hebrews reminds us, nothing is hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open before the eyes before whom we must give an account. So God is saying, don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. I see, I hear, and I'm sending the Assyrians. So you see what I mean by a sermon from an in-your-face prophet. Now, that continues now in chapter 4. That is the third reason for God's judgment, which is persistent oppression. But the first few verses are very interesting in chapter 4. The prophet isolates a certain segment of the population. He's going to address the women of Samaria, but in a very unkind and very unflattering tone and description. So I'm giving you a warning. Here's a prophet addressing the very wealthy, laden with luxury, and haughty women of Samaria. And notice the description. Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring us wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the days shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Now he calls them cows. Not a warm and flattering description. Cows of Bashan in particular, even worse. Bashan was an area of Israel. We would call it today the Golan Heights. In between, on the east side of the Jordan, Mount Hermon in the north, and the mountains of Gilead, a little bit further south, are lush, beautiful, verdant, fruitful hills. Known in that time as Bashan. And cows that got to live there were like spoiled. Because of the grass, it was good eaten. It wasn't the dry desert of Judea. It was rich, lush, lots of rainfall. So the cows of Bashan were fat. They, they were compared to uh, uh, the, the ultra-wealthy living in luxury. I mean, if you're going to be a cow, you don't want to live in India. <laughs> I've seen the cows over there. You want to live in Bashan. But to call these women, you cows of Bashan, who live on the mountains of Samaria. In other words, you are so filled with luxury, you've lapsed into moral laxity, you don't think about the things of God, you oppress the poor to better yourself. So the indictment comes upon them. The Lord has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks. Now that could be a metaphor, to pull somebody away with a hook. However, this actually happened. You may just uh, either put a marker or just put a note to look at later instead of turning to now. But Second Chronicles chapter 33 described the Assyrians coming in 
and taking King Manasseh and others and putting a fish hook, a hook in their nose. Now, it was common to chain prisoners together with hooks for obvious reasons. They're not going to run. They're going to walk very delicately, very deliberately. So this literally happened. Verse 3, you will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. So these haughty, arrogant, wealthy, unconcerned about God, unconcerned about the poor, wives of the husbands of Samaria are isolated here by the Lord. I think it was Sophie Tucker who said, Every girl has needs. From birth to age 18, she needs her parents. From age 18 to age 35, she needs good looks. From age 35 to age 55, she needs a good personality. And at age 55, she needs cash. The women of Samaria, the cows of Bashan, had the cash. And they oppressed the poor to get it. And they walked very proudly. A proud look. You know that one of the things God hates is a proud look. A haughty look. Isaiah also comments on them. Woe to those women complacent in Zion who walk haughtily with outstretched necks, said that prophet. Similar to the language here. Now, there is something I just want to draw your attention to in verse 3 before we move on. It says, each one straight ahead of her will be cast into Harmon. i got to confess something to you. I have no idea where Harmon is. You can't find a Bible atlas that shows you where Harmon is. Nobody knows. It's one of the mysteries of the Old Testament. But the Hebrew is Har Harmonah, the mountains of Harmon. Har Harmonah. The mountains of Harmon, Harmon means palace, is thought to be a place of refuge where fugitives would flee, maybe like some desert cave in the wilderness. Or it was a holding place where these fugitives were put by the king of Assyria, rounded up, hooked, chained, put in fetters, before they were carried off captive to Assyria. One of those two options. You take your choice. Verse 4, it continues, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. The two places are mentioned in that verse that had a sacred history. Bethel and Gilgal. We've been talking about Bethel. Bethel is the place named by Jacob. Remember when Jacob was fleeing from his brother and his father after stealing the blessing? And he's out out in the wilderness and he puts his head out in the desert on a rock. He feels very alone, very isolated, very distant from God. And that night he gets a dream, a vision of angels that are walking down and up a ladder from earth to heaven and back. And God speaks to him. He wakes up the next day and he says, wow. Well, I don't know if he said wow. He said, the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. Not the Lord was in this place, Last night when I had it, but the Lord is in this place. 
and I knew it not. I know it now, but I knew it not then. The Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. This is none other than Beit El in Hebrew. Bethel, the house of God. He calls it the house of God. And there in Bethel was a place where the covenant God made with Abraham was renewed with Jacob. It was a sacred place in their history. Gilgal was another sacred place. In Joshua chapter 5, they crossed over the Jordan River, came into the promised land, came to a place called Gilgal, which means circle. And there, the men of Israel obeyed God in the covenant of circumcision, renewing the Mosaic covenant. So in one place where the Abrahamic covenant was renewed, in another place where the Mosaic covenant was renewed, these sacred places of their history, they had profaned and perverted by worshiping idols in them. So this is a use of sarcasm. Come to Bethel and sin. It's like, it's like saying, hey, let's go to church and sin. Come to the very place God made his covenant with you and sin. Come to Gilgal, that sacred place when you came to that, and just sin. Because that's what they had done. So this use of divine sarcasm God is using in indicting his people. Offer a sacrifice with thanksgiving with leaven which is, of course, against the law, but they wouldn't matter. They were disobeying anyway. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Now, beginning in verse 6 on down to the rest of the chapter, there's some very specific chastisements. God's getting very specific. He's roared in judgment, chapter 1 and 2. He's now has given reasons for judgment in chapters 3 and now in chapter 4. Now there's some specific things God's going to dish out. And let me just encourage you to either write down in the margin of your Bible and look up later or put a marker there. I know you've got two markers now in two different places. But this time, Deuteronomy 28. Because what God is saying He's going to do now is something he said he would do back in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, the terms of the covenant. Obey me, I'll bless you. You'll be fruitful in the land. You won't have a drought. It'll rain. You won't have disease. I'll bless you. If you disobey me, you'll have drought, pestilence, etc., etc. All of these things had been promised, and now we're about to take place. And here's the first. Also... I gave you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities and lack of bread in all your palaces, yet you have not returned to me. Notice that last part. You'll see it repeated five times. Yet you have not returned to me. And when God says, I gave you clean teeth, he's not speaking of oral hygiene. He's not saying, I sent you to a dentist and had your teeth cleaned. In those days, cleanness of teeth was a famine. After a good meal, you well, some people do, or grab a toothpick because there's food that you have eaten. But cleanness of teeth speaks of scarcity of food. I've sent you famine, as predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Yet you have not returned to me. Now, this is how it should have worked. The physical hunger that they were experiencing due to the judgment should have prompted a spiritual hunger for the things of God. It should have brought them to repentance. 
They should have seen, you know what? Things aren't going really well here. I'm really hungry, aren't you? I'm starving to death. Well, maybe we should be having a hunger for the things of God. Maybe if we would turn back to Him, if we would worship Him and love Him with all of our hearts, the Lord would bless us. The the physical should have prompted them toward the spiritual. Yet, you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Here's the second specific. I also withheld rain from you. When you were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered... So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied, yet you have not returned to me. Famine and now drought, no rainfall. Now the land of Israel is a very interesting land. It is dependent upon yearly rainfall. You'll still go to this day and they'll say, pray that God will give us a good winter filled with rain. Because then the Sea of Galilee fills up. If the Sea of Galilee fills up, the Jordan River carries it down south toward the Dead Sea, and all the farms along the Jordan Valley will divert the river. You have a good crop. In that land, there were two rains, the early rain and the latter rain, the Yore and the Malkosh, they say in Hebrew. The Malkosh were the spring rains. And the corn and the grain would be affected by the malkosh, the latter rains, the spring rains. God is saying that he would withhold the spring, the malkosh, the spring rains, and thus there'd be a drought. The grain and the corn wouldn't be harvested, wouldn't come to fruition. Again, predicted in Deuteronomy. Okay, something else that's interesting. This rain would be selective. It'd rain in one city and you go to that city and then it would stop. And then you go to another city where they had collected the water in a cistern so that you could get some refreshment. But because it was selective and not uniform, it was a proof that this was a judgment of God. Again, people should ask the question, Hey, why is it only raining there but not here? And when I go over there, it stops and then it rains here. Duh! Here's the third specific, verse 9. I blasted you with blight and mildew. Can you see the uh, progression of these judgments? God began with blessing and tried to get their attention with blessing. And then now God says, if you won't listen to my blessing, you'll have to listen to my blasting. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increase, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me. Now this blight and mildew, it would literally be translated from the Hebrew text, yellow. It refers to a condition of the crop that doesn't turn its normal color, but it stays pale, yellow because of the famine due to the drought. So these crops suffer, and because the crops suffer, they suffer, and yet you haven't returned to me, says the Lord. Here's a fourth specific. 
I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword. Along with your captive horses, I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Already, the Assyrians had come in several attacks. The battlefield was strewn with the corpses of men. And I don't know if you've ever smelled a dead corpse. And it's something you'd never forget. When I worked in radiology at San Bernardino County Medical Center, every now and then the, the coroner would bring in either a body or a body part to be examined. They'd bring it into the radiology department, and they'd want us to make an examination to find out the cause of death. And I remember when I was in training one time, I, I walked out of the room and I said to my supervisor, I quit. He goes, what do you mean you quit? You're, you're in the middle of a medical program. You just, I said, no, I'm quitting the whole program. I can't stand it. It was my first exposure to rotting flesh. And it was horrible. And then to imagine a battlefield with the decay of human and animal corpses. The stench would rise up. And God says, that was part of the judgment, and yet you did not return to me. In the book of Revelation, you know how graphic God describes the tribulation that's coming? Very graphic. The kind of stuff that's going to come upon this earth is horrendous. Stars falling out of Heaven, hailstones that weigh 125 pounds careening to the earth, sores upon men's flesh, the sun bringing scorching heat upon men and women. Now, that should be enough to get anybody's attention and say to God, Uncle. But there's a very interesting verse of Scripture in Revelation 16, and it's repeated a couple times throughout the book. It said, yet for all of this, they blasphemed the God who sent these plagues, and they would not repent, but they hardened their hearts. You go, how could they do that? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. God is trying to get their attention so that they would turn to Him, but they became so recalcitrant, so hardened, so stubborn. Why? William Newell, who wrote a commentary on Romans and Hebrews, said, If men will not turn to God in His grace and goodness, they will not turn to Him at all. I think there's some truth to that. I think there's, I think there's truth that a, a heart can become so stubborn, so hardened, that no matter what kind of hardness comes against it, they just become entrenched. I've seen it in relationships. The relationship could easily be solved if there was humility on what the part of one spouse or both. It could quickly turn the situation around. No. Why? Because I'm right. 
Well, that's stupid. Your, your relationship could be cured if you humble yourself. Not gonna. She goes first. Not gonna. He goes first. Back in 1789 in Paris, France, there was a prison called the Bastille. It was a dungeon. 1789, it was being destroyed. It was evacuated. But down in the deep recesses of that dungeon, in the darkest spot, a prisoner who had been there for years was taken out into the sunlight to be released. However, because he had been there for so many years in darkness and confinement, the bright sunlight disturbed him, and he cried begging to go back to that place of confinement. You say, how could he? He's being set free. He gets to enjoy life, enjoy the sunshine. He'd become so conditioned to being in that place of misery that his only wish was to die in darkness. That's how hard our hearts can become. Yet for all of this... You didn't return to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as God overthrows Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. And yet, you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. Or I will do this, all that I've said. I will do thus to you. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now notice, this is not a gospel appeal. I've heard this verse used many times as a gospel. Prepare to meet your God. This is a a denunciatory proclamation of God's judgment. Prepare to meet your God. But it does bring up the issue, are you prepared to meet your God? How do you get prepared? Well, you're going to meet God, no matter what, whether you're prepared or not. (laughs) So why not get prepared? You're going to meet God under one one of two conditions. Where the judgment is given, and all of the sin you've ever committed, you have to pay for. Or, all of your sin will have been placed on Jesus Christ... And you stand covered in His righteousness. That's how you get prepared. God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So, you're going to meet God, whether you're prepared or not. Best to be prepared. The only way to be prepared is receive His Son. And all of that judgment placed upon Him, God's judgment passes over you, Because of the cross, you're acquitted, you're counted as righteous, you enjoy the blessings of God. Prepare to meet your God. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is, that is, what man's thought is, and makes the morning darkness who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord of hosts is his name. So God was trying to get through. God was unable to get through. 
Could it be that God has been trying to get through to some of us a number of ways over a period of time? You say, well, no, not with me because I've accepted Christ. I'm already a Christian. Well, I discover that God continually tries to get through to me on a number of issues. And I've discovered that there is an initial repentance that brings sonship. But then there is a continual repentance, even as a believer, that ensures fellowship. If we say we have no sin, John wrote to Christians, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a lifestyle of humility and repentance that God has called all of us to live in so that on a daily basis, moreover, every time we come to fellowship like this, Bibles open, hearts open, Lord, speak to me. How do you want to change me? What area needs to be altered? How have you been trying to get through? Remember, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He said that to Christians, not unbelievers. Could it be that He's been knocking on some of our hearts to finish His work, complete His work in us? God loves you the way you are. But God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. So let Him take you all the way through and complete His work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for these vital lessons that this sheep breeder and sycamore fruit tender in a very unique, in a very earthy, in a very raw way was able to get across to the capital city in Samaria, the city of Bethel where your covenant people were living and needed to hear this message. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ took our judgment. Thank you that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Thank you that we now can be the righteousness of God in him because of our faith in Christ. However, Lord, I pray that our hearts would not become hardened in those areas you've been trying to deal with, bring us along in, grow us up in. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, who won't let us go, but is committed to our maturity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.